Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Pay-Per-View. I'm going to start this episode with by far the most topical, relevant, significant, this discussed story this week, which is a story relevant to the Parkland shooting in Florida. And I'm not going to talk about the event itself, because if I did that, it would be another two-parter. If I do it, I want to do it in detail. I don't just want to make a random claim about it and then skip on to something else. I want to do it in detail. Already, information has come to light, which points to the fact that what happened that day is very different to what the mainstream official version tells us once again. But if I do it, I want to do a whole show on the event specifically. So I'll probably do a show in the middle of the week so that I don't have to miss any of the other stories by uploading the show Monday as usual. So I'm not going to focus on the event itself outside of the article I'm going to focus on today, at least not for another week, possibly longer, because I want to have time to look at all the information, look at the event in more detail. And that's something I've noticed over the years. The mainstream media will have the apparent truth of what happened in terms of an event very, very quickly. And if you just sit back, you find that eventually evidence will come to light and information will come to light proving that the real story of an event is very different to what the mainstream official version is, which is only what the authorities' official version is. So the article in question is in The Independent and it's in reference to Donald Trump coming out and saying he's planning to arm teachers after the shooting. The headline is, Donald Trump says he is considering arming teachers after shooting tragedy. President Donald Trump has said he is considering proposals to promote concealed carrying of weapons by trained school employees to respond to campus shootings. Meeting with students and parents affected by school shootings, Mr. Trump is responding to a call to arm teachers and other school employees so they can react before law enforcement arrives. The president said he believes the proposal could solve the problem of school shootings by making potential attackers think twice and noted that some Maryland pilots have carried concealed weapons since the attacks of September the 11th, 2001. An attack has lasted on average about three minutes. It takes five to eight minutes for responders to the police to come in, so the attack is over, Mr. Trump said. If you had a teacher that was adept at firearms, they could very well end the attack quickly. Mr. Trump recognised that the proposal is a contentious one and asked for a show of hands in the East Room of those for and against giving teachers and military veterans concealed weapons permits. Some in the room indicated support, while others said they were against the idea. Certainly it's controversial, but we'll study that along with many other ideas, the President told his guests. Mr. Trump was joined by Education Secretary Betsy DeVos and Vice President Mike Pence during the listening event. The three heard from survivors of the Parkland shooting, as well as parents from past school shootings, including some parents who lost their children during the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. That's another event where information has come to light to suggest that that was very different from what we were told as well. Question last week on whether she supported the arming of teachers, Mr. Voss said it was an important issue for all states to grapple with. After she was pressed for a personal view, she said decisions had to be made at the local level and the state level. Communities need to share best practices and results from the steps that they take to ensure that kids have a safe environment in which to learn. This is not a difficult issue. You're absolutely right. There are solutions and this administration has the ability to put them in place. Nicole Hockley, whose six-year-old son Dylan was killed in the Newtown shooting, said Miss Hockley continued to say that she does not think that arming teachers is a solution to address America's gun violence epidemic. 
and instead said that she would like to see teachers armed with knowledge to prevent future attacks. Mr Trump also indicated that he is interested in exploring how mental health treatment or awareness could help to stop future mass shootings. The idea is not a new one for the president, who said during a speech Thursday that Americans need to keep an eye out for people who they believe could act dangerously, and who may be suffering from mental illness and likely to turn to violence. At one point, he floated the idea of ending gun-free school zones as well. Julia Corsiver, the student body president at Stoneman, said that no matter what politicians decide in the end, something must be done. Another student, Sam Zeif, shared the story of his experience during last week's shooting. He said that he was worried about his brother, who was also in the building that was shot up, and that he later learned one of his best friends was among those killed. I lost a best friend, Mr Zeif said. He said that he doesn't think that assault-style weapons should be up for sale. He was practically a brother, and I'm here to use my voice because I know he can, and I know he's with me, cheering me on to be strong, but it's hard. And to feel like this, it doesn't even feel like a week. Time has stood still. In the aftermath of the shooting that left 17 dead and at least a dozen more injured, many of the students have spoken up in favour of gun control. That has included an organising effort for a mass march in Washington next month, which has grown to include several other march locations across the country. Well, let's get one thing clear from the beginning. The idea that Donald Trump has any care whatsoever for the victims is ludicrous. This is the same president that is sending troops to bomb in Yemen and is allowing virtually unlimited, if not unlimited, horrific treatment of the Palestinians by Israel. That's the person we're talking about. And the idea that you would suddenly then have care for students in the elementary school is ludicrous. But this is the hypocrisy that you get from political leaders. They'll go and send troops to bomb in foreign lands and then they'll feel morally outraged and upset at students being killed or any other attack in their own country. It's, um, hypocrisy is not the word really. The fact that they can stand there in front of a camera and a microphone and say they're morally outraged and then go and send more troops to bomb in Syria or Libya or wherever else is extraordinary, but it's not surprising when you've been following world events for over 10 years like I have. You expect it more than anything. And this thing about gun control, the question is not so much guns or no guns. That's a debate and it's important to have that debate. I don't like guns. I wish there were no guns. I wish guns never existed in the first place. But the point that needs to be made is that or the question that needs to be asked is why at this time of the law enforcement in America, more so than Britain, but it's happening in Britain to an extent, of the law enforcement becoming more and more like the military. In, in America they go around in tanks, the law enforcement, uh, virtually the military in all but name in America. Why at that time, given that I said in the last episode of pay-per-view that the idea is to have a vicious, brutal police, military force carrying out the will of the elite, less than 1%, on anybody or any group who don't obey authority. Why, at this time, does authority want to disarm the population? That's the question that needs to be asked, because obviously a disarmed population is going to be far more open to following authority than a population 
with arms and I'm not saying I agree with the violence I don't like I just said I would prefer it if there were no guns but it's shades of grey not black and white and that's the way it's presented to us in the media as I've said before the question is why is that happening and the answer is because if you disarm a population and you pit them against a military law enforcement and obviously they're going to be far more likely to go quietly and to obey authority even if they know that the officer or the, whatever they would be called in any situation has got it wrong even though the citizen knows they're quite within their rights to contest what they're being charged for or what they're being accused of when you've got a military man who is officially called law enforcement opposing you then most people are going to be far more likely to go quietly and law enforcement over the last several years has changed from being about fighting crime as police i don't know about america but certainly in this country at one point going a few decades back now but police were the old bobbies as they were called in this country they would just of course there would have been exceptions even then but at one point they would just patrol the streets. You could talk to them, have a conversation with them. And they were there just to enforce the law rather than what they, to a very large extent, morphed into law enforcement nowadays, which is this military thug-like, not even thug-like, thug mentality that many of them have. Some of them want a fight. They want a conflict because that's their personality. And they've changed the way, certainly in this country, but it, it must be the case in America because of the way America, American law enforcement is. They've changed the way they process job applications through something called psychometric testing, by which you can very accurately glean from the answers they give to questions, someone's personality, very carefully selected questions. And they're doing that because they want certain personality types to fill the positions of law enforcement, to phase out the old type of policeman. Of course, there will be exceptions. There's a lot of good policemen who are stuck in the office doing paperwork. And there's a lot of good policemen who will want to do the job the policeman is supposed to do. But the idea is to outnumber them and give them paperwork to do and lesser jobs to do and in the end get rid of them completely and in the end ultimately they want a technological military police law enforcement and we're seeing the steps to that all the time this robotic law enforcement we're seeing that being developed in the public arena now and that's the real reason that's the, the context of why there is this push for gun control. It's not ultimately about protecting civilians. It's about generating a more acquiescent population, an unquestioning population in the face of a hyper-armed and military law enforcement with state-of-the-art weaponry. Now, I'm not saying that Donald Trump will know what the agenda is that I've just 
explained. The end result is what matters. It doesn't matter if he knows. The end result is the same. So I'm going to leave that subject of the Florida shooting there for now. Like I said, I may get into it another time, but I want to do it in detail if I'm going to do it at all. So the next story I'm going to focus on today is a change of subject entirely, but still on the subject of the young. Another story about transgender and the focus on gender. These stories keep appearing week after week because there's an agenda behind gender, or fluid gender as it's called, as I've talked about before. This is in the Daily Mail. Furious parents have slammed a primary school for inviting a drag queen who calls herself Bristol's resident slag to read stories to children. The performers are visiting the school to read tales about tolerance to the Kids for World Book Day. Parsons Street Primary School in Bristol is welcoming the Drag Queen Storytime organisation on March the 1st. The team of six drag queens in the project have performed to over 2,000 children in the UK during the past eight months. But a number of parents expressed concern about who the drag queens are and the age appropriateness of the reading materials. One mother claims one of the drag queens calls herself Bristol's resident slack. She said lots of parents at the school are not happy about it, but the headmaster says there's no negotiation. He said if we don't like it, we should take our kids out of school on an unauthorised absence. There are books dotted around the school about sexuality. They learn a lot about LGBTQ plus in school and that's fun. Just look at that, LGBTQ plus. They finished with that or are they going to add more letters to it? I mean, there's 26 letters in the alphabet. So where does it end? It's ridiculous. We've reduced gender to letters now, not even words, letters. But I just think it's gone too far now and the head is using his position of power and influence to push this information on the children. One of the drag queens refers to herself as Bristol's resident slack. These are children of between 4 and 11. They don't need to be exposed to that. They are adult entertainers. I just don't see how that is age appropriate. Several mothers also accused head teacher Jamie Barry of being vague about which drag queens were attending the school and what stories they would be reading. But the school stated it takes the safeguarding of its pupils to be their absolute priority. It confirmed it as communicated information about DQST to the parents of the school prior to the event. DQST is the Drag Queen Storytime Organisation. Parsons Street Primary School recently won the Gold Best Practice Award from LGBT Education Charity Educate and Celebrate. Parents say they are also concerned whether or not the drag queens who volunteer with the self-funded organisation are DBS police checked. But the organisation reassured many of the drag queens it uses are already DBS checked for jobs they have done previously as teachers and volunteers. DQST organiser Tom Cannon said all of the reading material we use at our performances are specifically written for children and cover all of the topics we engage with in an age-appropriate format. If parents have any worries, especially in regards to age appropriateness, then I encourage them to go to our Facebook page. It has all the books and authors we use at readings. It ranges from The Hungry Caterpillar to And Tango Makes Three. When you introduce tolerance at a young age, they take it on board. Exactly. That's why they're doing it. Programming perception from the earliest possible age. Many of these children will not be LGBT themselves, but they will at some point come into contact with someone who is. We have an opportunity to provide our children with a better world in which to grow up, free from fear of rejection or abuse for being who they are. Drag Queen Storytime is proud to be working with fantastic organisations all across the country to help make that a reality. 
Headmaster Barry said, we are a community-focused school and lots of effort is put into working in partnership with parents. We understand the concerns that have been raised and have spoken with many of our community to reassure them of the appropriateness of the activities plan. Children are at the centre of all that we do at Parson Street, so it is fantastic that so many of them are excited about March the 1st. We know that many of our parents are also equally as excited and they look forward to also joining us on the day. Parsons Street Primary School is the first Bristol school to be awarded a gold practice status for promoting equality and diversity. It's not about promoting equality and diversity, it's about programming perception from the earliest possible age. Councillor Anna Keane, Cabinet Member for Education and Skills for Bristol City Council said, We are very supportive of children engaging with different groups of people in an educational setting as it teaches them about accepting themselves and others, but that's not what it's about. We know that good reading skills can help set children up for life and reduce inequalities. Our experience of welcoming drag queen story time into our libraries was very positive and successful. What this proves is that Councillor Anna Keane and her teacher Mr Barry are both clueless about what this is really about. It's about selling this transgenderism agenda, which I've talked about before, which is ultimately about no gender, a synthetic race that does not procreate and this is fundamentally connected to the transhumanism agenda to connect people to technology a technological hive mind which then does all human thinking as prominent names in silicon valley are talking about in terms of the transhumanism agenda it's about selling that agenda to kids now am i saying the drag queens know that and the LGBT people know that? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm not saying any of the teachers know it. Clearly the head teacher doesn't know it. And the organisation, Drag Queen Storytime, almost certainly none of the people in that organisation will have any idea what it's about. But they don't need to know what it's about. In fact, if they knew what it's about, then what it's ultimately about would not be able to be successful because people would see what it's about and therefore they wouldn't buy into it. Speaking of transgenderism, the next story here takes us to political correctness again. This is in the Daily Mail. Charity calls police after a teacher misgenders a trans pupil and say he has committed a hate crime. A charity called in police to deal with a teacher who misgendered a pupil. Mermaids, which supports children who believe they were born in their own body. Why? Well, for many of them, it's because they're being encouraged, as with this story I just read, to think differently about gender more than they ever were before. Mermaids, who it supports children who believe they are born in their own body, said the teacher had committed a hate crime because he did not address a child using his new gender. The youngster, who had switched from female to male, wanted staff and pupils at his school to accept his new identity. Under the Equality Act, schools have a duty to accommodate transgender pupils and make sure they do not suffer upset or bullying. According to Mermaids, the teacher often failed to use the correct gender pronouns for the boy. He, him and his. The charity said the reminders of his past as a girl had caused the boy to become depressed. Volunteers for mermaids intervened on behalf of the boy and when the teacher refused to accept their point of view, they called police. Calling the police because someone used the wrong pronoun. To people who have a problem when anybody commits any politically incorrect speech, crime, because that's what it's becoming, my advice would be go and live in Gaza, go and live in Tripoli, go and live in 
Syria, see your children being born from the sky by the West on a manufactured pretext just to give them an excuse to justify an invasion. Watch your country being blown to bits by the West. And then come back and talk about being upset. That kind of being upset is perfectly understandable. The other one is ridiculous and nonsensical. Sometimes you just have to pause and contemplate just how crazy this world is because otherwise you accept it and if you accept it then you become crazy yourself. Volunteers for mermaids intervened on behalf of the boy when the teacher refused to accept the point of view they called police. Susie Green, who heads the charity, told the Times Educational Supplement the tough action was necessary to protect the boy's mental health. She said, we had to get the police involved because a young student was being regularly misgendered by his tutor. The tutor dismissed it until he was informed that it counted as a hate crime. Hate crime is a term to stop legitimate discussion of issues that need discussing and points that need making that are fundamental to the future of human society. The matter has now been resolved by the police, but in the meantime, the student was off school with anxiety and depression for two weeks. This damage to their mental health was unnecessary and completely avoidable. Yeah, if they chose not to be offended by it. No police necessary. This is why the law exists and why you must stick to it. That's not why the law exists. The reason you have this focus on you can't offend transgender people is to stop the truth coming out of what transgenderism is really about. And that's why we should not stick to it. The charity did not see how old the child was or whether the police took any further action against the teacher or the school. Mrs Green said schools had a legal duty to respect the wishes of children who want to identify with the opposite gender to that with which they were born. But Chris McGovern of the Campaign for Real Education said, The general population are unlikely to support the use of police to enforce a language code in schools. Mermaids are well-intentioned, but in this instance they are doing more damage than good. We all want tolerance and people should be taught to treat each other how they should wish to be treated themselves. But enforcing language using the police will antagonise. It can even make transgender children the focus of resentment. This is all about political correctness being the means through which exposure of the real agenda behind something is attempted to be stopped by political correctness. But only for those who are naive enough to believe it, we should be politically correct and always stick to that. And also those who are afraid for one reason or another to be offensive or to say things that are offensive. If you're being genuinely offensive, then that should be dealt with. But if you are just making points that need making, that's where political correctness comes in to stop that happening. A bit of a theme of the young this week. Another story. This is in the Daily Mail. Social media is causing a global mental health crisis among young people, according to the chief of a university hit by suicides among students. Hugh Brady, vice-chancellor of Bristol, said the pressure to appear perfect all the time online was causing anxiety and depression. He said social media sites such as Facebook and Instagram have become a burden for youngsters who feel they have to pretend to be happy all the time. Seven students at Bristol have killed themselves in less than 18 months, with three doing so within weeks of each other. Speaking for the first time since the tragedies, Professor Brady said they were symptomatic of a wider issue. He said many other universities have also seen a rise in those with mental illness, with record referral rates to student counselling services. Unfortunately, this is a global issue, he said. If you look over the last five to eight years across the UK, but equally in Canada and the US, the number of students seeking help for and declaring mental health issues has almost tripled. 
asked what is causing the younger generation more stress. He said many felt the world was becoming more uncertain. He said youngsters often worried about political turmoil, student debt and global warming. Well, they don't need to worry about the last one, that's for certain, as I've said before. But the burden of social media may well be the straw that has broken the camel's back, and particularly this issue of what some people refer to as perfectionism, he said. Professor Brady, who has 22-year-old triplets who are students, said he could see what his own children gained from social media, but he also understood the pressures. It's not okay to have a bad day, he said. In the world of social media, you have to look like you're happy even when you're not. He said the university would be talking to the student body about exploring the potential benefits of a detox from social media in the way we've detoxed in the past from substances. That's a very good point because addiction to technology is now being treated as an addiction every bit as much as alcohol and drugs. Technology and social media is changing the brain. And there's a very good book called Mind Change by a woman called Susan Greenfield. Susan Greenfield is a scientist and author. And in the book, she looks at the effect of technology and social media on the brain and personality. And she says that the mid-21st century mind might almost be infantilized, characterized by short attention spans, sensationalism, inability to empathize, and a shaky sense of identity. And she says in her book that electronic devices all have an impact on the microcellular structure and complex biochemistry of our brains. And that in turn affects our personality, our behavior, and our characteristics. In short, the modern world could well be altering our human identity. And she goes on to say that already it's pretty clear that the screen-based two-dimensional world that so many teenagers and a growing number of adults inhabit is producing changes in behaviour. Attention spans are shorter, personal communication skills are reduced, and there's a marked reduction in the ability to think abstract. Of course, when she talks about communication skills being reduced, that is happening in the face of soundbite communication in the form of the media and social media, especially Twitter, 280 characters to communicate with. It's all destroying communication in terms of how communication was before, and it's all calculated. The more you get used to communicating like that, the harder it is for you to communicate in detail and to take in detail. The article continues. Five students took their own lives in a single academic year at Bristol, followed by a further two deaths the year after. It's always difficult, Professor Brady told The Guardian, adding that there was further concern over attempted suicide rates and a huge increase in referrals to counselling services within universities. That's common to all universities, so something has changed, he said. He was speaking ahead of the launch of a new model of pastoral care at the university, which has been drawn up to address the growing mental health needs of students. This will include spending an additional £1 million annually on workers who can support students and spot early signs of distress. And there's a very good book by a woman called Susan Greenfield called Mind Change. And she says in one of the quotes from the book, in terms of the effect of technology and social media and the soundbite nature, entertainment and communication on Twitter, etc., communication by 280 characters. Attention span of young people is being manipulated to be to be shorter and shorter. Uh, she says in the quote, the mid-21st century mind might almost be infantilized, characterized by short attention spans, sensationalism, 
inability to empathize and a shaky sense of identity. And she also says, electronic devices all have an impact on the microcellular structure and complex biochemistry of our brains. And that in turn affects our personality, our behavior and our characteristics. In short, the modern world could well be altering our human identity. She goes on to say, already it's pretty clear that the screen-based two-dimensional world that so many teenagers and a growing number of adults inhabit is producing changes in behavior. Attention spans are shorter, personal communication skills are reduced, and there's a marked reduction in the ability to think abstractly. It's all coldly calculated. And she talks about identity there. We live in a world now of what has been called identity Politics. This article was published on February. Events and situations from the basis of the group they associate with, rather than what they themselves think of the situation. And, of course, in terms of the young with identity, you've kind of got them being encouraged to be politically correct. You've got the focus by young people on other young people, the imposition of using the right language, using the right pronouns in terms of gender and social justice warriors making other young people or trying to make other young people conform to political correctness and you've got young people being encouraged to think differently about gender the young are being targeted more than any other generation because they are the adults of the future obviously and so they are designed to be the adults when this control and suppression and the elite's agenda is complete and the world they want to bring in is the world that we have if we allow that to happen. Change of subject again now. Of course a lot of young people look up to Jeremy Corbyn who is the subject of my next story. Especially some of the progressive politically correct young people in this country. And this next story is on the theme of money. This is in the Daily Mail. Corbyn is accused of wanting to turn the city into Pyongyang after Labour leader launches new attack on reckless bankers and vows to stand up for the real economy. Jeremy Corbyn was accused of wanting to turn the city of London into a Soviet-era capital that is like Pyongyang in North Korea today. The Labour leader made a hard-hitting speech on reforming the banks to a conference of manufacturers today vowing to stand up for the real economy. But his demand for an end to out-of-control financial wizardry and gambling was met with mockery by city analysts. The promises could also align boardrooms as polls show Labour as competitive in the race for number 10. City commentator David Buick told the standard Mr Corbyn appeared to want to turn London into the last Soviet-era capital west of Pyongyang. He added, to go crashing into the city of London at a time of Brexit, which is proving a very difficult process, is close to insanity. In his speech this lunchtime, Mr Corbyn told the annual conference of the EEF Manufacturing Lobby Group in London, we will take decisive action to make finance the servant of industry, not the masters of us all. His latest attack comes weeks after he warned bankers that they were right to see Labour as a threat. That broadside came after analysts at Morgan Stanley dared to warn that his hard-left policies would be catastrophic for the economy and were more dangerous than risks from Brexit. Just a point on Brexit, obviously the establishment and the political elite and the elite don't want Brexit and so on. It's no problem for the elite if they have to to trigger economic and financial problems 
persuade people before a possible second referendum that maybe Brexit was a bad idea. So we need to keep our mind open to the fact that what happens because of Brexit is not necessarily naturally happening because of Brexit. It could be manipulated. I'm not saying necessarily what is going to happen, but we need to keep our minds open to the possibility. Investment bankers at Goldman Sachs have also warned that the UK would be like Cuba without the sunshine if Mr Corbyn became Prime Minister. But it is not just bankers who have cautioned against a government led by Mr Corbyn and his shadow chancellor John McDonnell, who has spoken of his wish to see the overthrow of capitalism. Terry Skewler, retiring head of the EEF, has said Labour represents a nightmarish prospect from business and could wreck the economy. Many campaigners have railed against sky-high pay in the city, but it is a global powerhouse that rakes in huge sums of money for the Treasury each year. Financial services firms paid £72.1 billion in taxes last year. According to the City of London Corporation, 11% of the total handed over to the Exchequer. Taxes paid by high-earning bankers and other professionals made up £31.4 billion of this. Mr Corbyn said, We need a fundamental rethink of whom finance should serve and how it should be regulated. There can be no rebalancing of our distorted, sluggish and unequal economy without taking on the power of finance. For 40 years, deregulated finance has progressively become more powerful. Its dominance over industry, obvious and destructive. Its control of politics, pernicious and undemocratic. The size and power of finance created a generation of politicians who thought the City of London could power the whole economy. Out-of-control financial wizardry and gambling were left barely regulated, while the real economists in once strong industrial areas were put into managed decline. For a generation, instead of finance-serving industry, politicians have served finance. We've seen where that ends. The productive economy, our public services and people's lives being held hostage by a small number of too-big-to-fail banks and casino financial institutions. Miles Selleck, Chief Executive of the City UK Financial Services Lobby Group, said, What too many politicians fail to grasp is that the industry is a national asset. It is more than the City of London, with strong financial centres right across the country, in cities such as Manchester, Glasgow, Cardiff, Birmingham and Bristol. Two-thirds of the 2.2 million jobs in the industry are outside the M25. As well as providing jobs and tax revenue, this industry helps people save for a mortgage, start a business, invest in new technologies or plan for retirement. This article talks about the City of London. Well, there's London, which is London in its entirety, and then there's the City, or the City of London. The City with a capital C. It's hugely significant to the coordination of the elite's global agenda. Any financial manipulation, which I alluded to earlier, in terms of Brexit, will come ultimately from the City of London. It's no wonder the legal profession in the city is fundamentally connected to the Knights Templar and elite secret society, which has enormous influence on the legal profession. And the City of London's influence extends beyond London and even beyond Britain. Another point that needs making is that when Corbyn says... There can be no rebalancing of our distorted, sluggish and unequal economy without taking on the power of finance. He's almost there. That is true. But I would phrase it another way. Until there is a massive reorganisation of the 
balance of wealth, which is done by, or most effectively, by reorganising the money system itself and an end to banks being able to lend fresh air money that doesn't exist called credit and charging interest on it with interest that is just created out of nothing itself. Until that changes, then we'll always have the situation we've got into is the banks. Why can't governments create their own money, currency, unit of exchange, which is all the money is supposed to be, just a means to overcome the obvious limitations of barter and not a means of control? Why can't governments create their own money, print their own money interest-free without a private bank creating credit until there is an end to private banks lending credit which doesn't exist and charging non-existent interest on it, nothing can change. So it will be interesting to see what Corbyn says and does. I'm not expecting what I've just said to happen, but until it does there can be ultimately no change. And the massive imbalance of wealth will remain because that is what allows it to happen. The elite that own the banks can charge interest on money and then if we don't pay back money that doesn't exist they take our wealth land business car etc that does exist and money itself credit is debt it's created from the start as a debt because you're asking people to pay back credit plus interest that is never created so by definition there is never ever enough money in circulation to pay back what needs paying back and it's done systematically and it's coldly calculated to be so. When you deposit, say, £10 in a bank, because of laws like fractional reserve lending, among others, then that gives the bank to lend at least 10 times what you've deposited. So you give, let's say, £50,000 to someone to buy a car, let's say a second-hand car from them, and then they will don't deposit that in their bank. Now that bank can lend 10 times the 50,000, which was created out of nothing in the first place, plus the interest on it. And if you follow one loan through the banking system, the money that can be generated out of nothing is incredible. Until this situation is addressed, nothing ultimately can change. Keeping on the same theme with money, I don't pay with contactless cards because I don't quite trust it, says the Bank of England's chief cashier whose signature is on every banknote. This is in the Daily Mail. The Bank of England's chief cashier has revealed she doesn't use contactless cards because she doesn't completely trust the technology. Victoria Cleland, whose signature is on every Bank of England note, said she prefers to use cash for small transactions. The 47-year-old also says predictions of the death of cash are premature, insisting that cash is definitely here to stay. Well, I hope so, but I wouldn't guarantee it. I personally don't really use contactless, she told the Guardian. To be blunt, it wasn't on my card for a long time, and so I've just got into the habit of preferring not to. And I do hear stories of friends, this is a personal anecdote, this isn't the official bank view, whose money has been taken off contactless when you walk past something. And it's only up to £30, so I use cash for lower transactions anyway, and for big ones, contactless wouldn't work. Miss Cleland said cash was used for 44% of all transactions in 2016, the last year for which there is data available. The figure is down from 50% the previous year and 68% 10 years ago, but she says there's still a growth in the total demand for cash. But her comments come as data shows 
decline of cash is set to hit a turning point this year with cards ever taking notes and coins as the country's favoured payment method. Britain will quickly blow past the point of peak cash when card usage ever takes cash as the most popular way to pay. It follows a massive rise in contactless payments following the introduction of bank cards that allow it for transactions of £30 or under. It is estimated that only a fifth of sales will involve cash by 2026 according to The Guardian. And there's another section here. How secure are contactless cards? There has been a massive rise in contactless payments following the introduction of bank cards that allow it for transactions £30 or under. Most banks in the UK now issue their cards as contactless cards, meaning they can be used for transactions of £30 or under without a PIN or signature. Other methods of contactless payment include using smartphones, mobile phone apps, key fobs and wearable devices, including watches and wristbands. According to the UK Cards Association, one in four card payments are now contactless, totaling more than £3.3 billion every month. Contactless cards are built using the same secure system as chipping pin, with each including a range of security features to safeguard information and protect customers from fraud. There have also not been any confirmed reports of money being stolen from a contactless card while still in its owner's possession, according to the association. However, customers will get their money back from their bank if they are a victim of fraud. Well, contactless is just obviously a massive step towards the cashless society that I've talked about before, which obviously has massive implications for human life. If you disobey authority, if you challenge and expose authority, whether it's publicly or on social media, and the machine says no to your card, you have no means of purchase. And this is what it's all about. This is why they want cashless society, because it's total control. What's the most effective means of control on the planet? Money. And that's why they want a cashless society. And of course that plays into the Hunger Games society, which I talked about last week, where there's a three-tier society. The elite in Mega Mega Luxury, and the only tier in between that is the vicious military police force I've already talked about today. And I talked about last week. And if you want money, you have to do the job that the state is telling you you have to do. This is what it's all about, total control. That's why they want it. Something I know from personal experience, I found that it's a lot easier to go overdrawn on contactless because I was using contactless and I went to the bank because I went overdrawn. I didn't know why I'd never gone overdrawn before. And they said to me, the bank advisor said to me, because you can still pay with contactless even when you've got no money on your card or not enough money on your card because it, it takes it out your bank a few days later and so it's easy for you to think I can still pay and it's easy to forget about it and then not put, get, put the money back in the bank account that you need to cover the cost of what you pay for with contactless. So I was advised to just enter the pin, put the card in the machine and enter the pin. So there's that as well but that's kind of a side issue really. The main thing is that it's about total control. That's the main implication for human life of contactless. Continuing the theme of money for the last story today. This is in the Independent. Student finance isn't working, Theresa May admits as she launches major review. Theresa May will admit that the current system of tuition fees is no longer working as she delivers a major speech pledging to overhaul post-18 education with a review of the entire system. In an attempt to defuse the political damage inflicted on the Conservative Party since 2010 over the toxic issue of trebling tuition fees, 
with younger voters across England. The Prime Minister will say that the system of variable fees has not resulted in the competitive market originally envisaged. Instead, Mrs May will accept we now have one of the most expensive systems of university tuition in the world. Just a point on where it says Miss May will accept. I've seen this before. Miss May will say this, Miss May will say that in a speech. Surely if you really believe something, you can just say it without having to plan it first because it should just come from inside of you. And also, if we know what Theresa May is going to say, now what's the point of her saying it? What's the point of her standing in front of a camera with a microphone outside Downing Street or wherever else and making a speech if you already know what she's going to say? Crazy. And also, it says, in an attempt to defuse the political damage inflicted on the Conservative Party since 2010. As if that's why she's doing it, and it very probably is. What about doing it because it's the right thing to do? This is what we see in politics all the time. In a move to give the party a better name, this politician is doing this, or this political leader is doing that. But why about doing it because it's the right thing to do? This is the way politics works. It's political in every sense. The article goes on, setting out details of a long-promised government-led review into post-18 education due to conclude in early 2019, Miss May will outline how she also aims to break down the false boundaries and warn against the outdated attitudes that favour academic over technical qualifications. Supported by an independent chair and panel, it is expected that the review will look at all aspects of student funding, such as cutting or freezing tuition fees, as well as the contentious issue of interest on loan repayments at up to 6.1%. But in a frank acknowledgement of concerns across the country over the higher education system and the growing debt burden facing young people, Miss May will add, the competitive market between universities which the system of variable tuition fees envisaged has simply not emerged. All but a handful of universities charge the maximum three-year courses remain the norm and the level of fees charged do not relate to the cost or quality of the course. And in her clearest hint yet that scrapping the maintenance grants, a policy announced by George Osborne in 2015, was a blunder. The Prime Minister will note that the government's goal of making university accessible to young people from every background is not made easier by a funding system which leaves students from the lowest income households bearing the highest levels of debt. Miss May will add that the review will examine how we can give people from disadvantaged backgrounds an equal chance to succeed, and that includes how disadvantaged students and learners receive maintenance support from both government and universities and colleges. The issue of university finance has become a key political battleground since the general election, with the Conservatives struggling to win over younger voters from Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, which has promised to abolish fees and bring back grants for poorer students. A study published last year by the economic think tank, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, before the government announced a fee freeze at the Tory party conference, calculated that fees of £9,250 and interest rates of up to 6.1% would mean that the average student would earn more than £50,000 on graduation. Miss May's speech also comes after Damien Hines, appointed as Education Secretary at during January's reshuffle, indicated tuition fees should be based partly on how a degree course could benefit a student's future career. But speaking on Sunday, his predecessor, Justine Greening, who dramatically left the government in January after refusing to switch cabinet posts, said such a system could inadvertently harm social mobility and urged the ministers to reintroduce maintenance grants for the poorest students. 
The former cabinet minister also gave the review a lukewarm reception, adding that while she was in government, she was determined not to keep the issue of university funding into the long grass and spend time looking at things instead of taking action. During the speech in Derbyshire on Monday, Miss May will add that one of the greatest social achievements of the last half century is the transformation of academic education from something enjoyed almost exclusively by a social elite into something which is open for everyone. But she will say that the review will aim to break down false boundaries in the post-18 system and urge people to throw away an outdated attitude that she claims favours academic over technical and vocational qualifications for young people. Miss May will add, for those young people who do not go on to academic study, the routes into further technical and vocational training is a day hard to navigate. The standards across the sectors are too varied and the funding available to support them is patchy. So now is the time to take action to create a system that is flexible enough to ensure that everyone gets the education that suits them. Returning to the sentiments expressed in her first speech as Prime Minister on the steps of Downing Street in July 2016, Miss May will say we can build a country that truly does work for everyone, adding a country where your background does not define your future and class distinctions are a thing of the past. Where a boy from a working class home can become a high court judge thanks to a great state education, and where a girl from a private school can start a software business thanks to a first class technical education. That is my vision for a fairer society and how he will deliver it. A society where good, rewarding work is available for everyone. Britain as the great meritocracy, a country that respects hard work, rewards effort and industry, where a happy and fulfilled life is within everyone's grasp. Well, there's a few points to make about this. First of all, tuition fees are basically getting young people into debt, which they then have to spend the rest of their lives paying back, which means they have to serve the system. I've talked before about education and how it's there to turn out young people to see the world in themselves in the way that suits the system. And if you're really good at absorbing the programming, the indoctrination from education, which is telling you five days a week what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's not true, what's credible, what's not credible, who's credible, who's not credible, what's possible, what's not possible. And you get that throughout your formative years. And you're taught by teachers who've been through the same programming. And then if you absorb the programming really well, then you go into a specialisation. It could be finance, it could be law, you might become a doctor, a teacher, a journalist, and you are taking with you into those professions the core programming. And I've talked before about how education is primarily left-brain focused, which is about logic, structure, limitation, rules, whereas the right side of the brain is creativity, it's seeing possibilities and ways of doing things that the left brain can't see. It's being able to connect dots and look at things from a different angle. It's being able to see the bigger picture. And also, Theresa May is saying that this is going to happen. It doesn't necessarily mean it will. It'll be interesting to see what does happen in terms of student finance and tuition fees, but I'm not expecting anything. I mean, the Liberal Democrats said that they would get rid of tuition fees a few years ago now. And it never happened. When Nick Clegg came into power with Cameron, and we had the joint leadership of Clegg and Cameron, they said they would get rid of tuition fees. It never happened. So it's been said before. It's easy to say things. Whether it's going to happen or not is a different story. But when Theresa May says that she's looking at overhauling post-18 education with a review of the entire system, the question is, in what way? Overhauling something with a new system, is it sounds a good idea, but... That's the way the scam is played. The question is, how is it going to be overhauled and why? You see, this is what the mainstream media 
does all the time. They'll tell you what's happening, but they won't always tell you why it's happening because most journalists don't see the bigger picture of changes in society and world events. They just see what's happening. So it'll be worth watching to see how post-18 education is reformed because all college and university are is further programming, further indoctrination. We call it education. It's indoctrination of a belief system. There are so many things that would be beneficial for kids to be taught in school that are never taught in school because they're not supposed to be because it would give them a fundamentally different view of the world and themselves if they were taught those things. It's about indoctrination so that those young people will see themselves, the world and possibility in the way that suits the system so they will therefore behave in a way that suits the system. They will have the perceptions you want them to have and our actions come from perception. If you get the perception, you get the actions, you get what people will support or they won't support, what they'll call for, what they won't call for, what they'll accept, what they won't accept, what they'll do, what they'll say, etc. That's what it's about. It's all about perception. There's too many people in the world to physically control the population, although they plan to do that in the end through technology. But at the moment, they have to do it through manipulation and perception, which is what the mainstream media is there for and what education is there for what governments, therefore, on one level. It's all about manipulation of perception. It happens technologically as well, to an extent, now already. It happens in other ways as well. It's perception, manipulation, ultimately, in the end, the whole thing. Because it has to be, because there's a tiny number, when it comes to the elite in the end, who are knowingly behind all this, who know how the whole thing works and fits together. And... There's enormous numbers of people who are subject to that manipulation and control and suppression and the elite's global agenda. But if you have the information to see the context, the bigger picture, and you know the agenda so you can make the connections, then you can see through the official version of everything. And you can see where society is going and why. And you can see mainstream everything for what it really is. So that's it for this week. I look forward to do a pay review again next week as usual and I hope you've enjoyed it and I look forward to continuing to give the context and connections to the week's news and the events of the week so until next time goodbye <laughs>